Well, uh, welcome back. This is week six. Um, our discipleship recharge, uh, I keep calling it recharge. Discipleship equipping class, we used to call these, if you're new, we used to call these classes recharge. Um, so you'll hear me slip back into that. It's our discipleship equipping class, week six. And uh, we're going to be kind of the final roundup, trying to wrap everything up today. And uh, I may leave some time for questions at the end, but I can't give you any guarantees. So uh, I've not been very good at pacing for this this class, but hope it's been helpful. Uh, so let's pray, and we'll jump right into it. Father, we're humbled and thankful that uh, you love us and that we belong to you. We're thankful that um, you're just such a faithful shepherd and that you're in control from start to finish of your mission, which includes um, us here at Timberlake and how we uh, how we seek to make disciples as we seek to evangelize the lost and um, and edify the saints. And Lord, we've been looking at that edification theme, this whole um, equipping class, and we pray that your spirit would see to it to bear, to bear the fruit that you desire um, among us uh, through just kind of one more venue to teach. And uh, we dedicate the time to you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, you know where we've been. I won't uh, kind of needlessly review, but um, we started with in week one with a vision for discipleship, kind of set that up up front, and then the rest of our class has just been looking at um, the faithful practices of an effective discipler, uh, which were, where do we start? Modeling, what does that mean? Living a life worth following. Living a life worth following, yep, and why is that important? Kind of right out of the gate. Yeah, excellent. We're always we're always influencing each other um, at some level. So it's a matter of whether your influence is a good influence, godly, Christ-like influence, is this propelling them toward Jesus or not, um, and then and then growing in that. So, yeah, living a life worth following. Uh, first, we want to remove the log from our eye so that we can see clearly to remove the speck out of our brothers and sisters' eyes. So. Um, so it starts with us in our heart, and are we looking for perfection? No, no because that's not here, this side of glory. We're looking for progress, right? Um, humility, repentance, and modeling that, modeling growth and mind renewal. All right, so that was week two was modeling. Week three was befriending. So what did we mean by that? What was, why is that a, a practice of a faithful discipler? Yes, you have to have relationships in order to disciple someone. And based on the model of Jesus, do you think we should wait around on those relationships or be proactive in those relationships? Proactive, yeah. And so befriending is that idea of taking initiative in relationships um, to do spiritual good to other people. And so we don't wait around, but we begin to befriend. And what are some ways we might do that here at the church? Invite them to a meal. Invite them to a meal. Just any meal or your meal? Any meal. Yeah. Coffee. Coffee, yeah, good. Sit by them in church. Sit by them in church, yeah, easy. Yeah, take initiative, show interest. Indeed. So we looked at that in depth, and then we have spent, what is this, week four, five, and now six, on uh, this central role of teaching. Uh, teaching as a, as a practice of an effective discipler. What do we mean by teaching? Changing behavior. Okay, changing behavior. That would be an aspect of that. So you're communicating truth to someone so that they believe it. Um, if they're sinning, they turn from their sin, trust Christ. Yeah, so I, I framed it up as, you know, teaching, when we, when we think about discipleship and teaching uh, and personal discipleship, we're talking about moving toward others and helping them discern lies that they're believing and um, revealing truth to them, teaching them truth, modeling that for them, bringing that to them. Um, so that they can learn to repent and walk in that. And we looked at that in depth last week. And uh, just by way of review, you can see your handout um, has a lot of this, the point, the first five points we covered last week, and then I kind of tagged on point six uh, there at the end, but I didn't spend much time on it. So I want to come back and pick up point six uh, tonight, uh, kind of flesh that out a bit for you. 
And then uh, my, my plan, at least, is to do a case study, just kind of take an, take an example um, and just kind of work it through with you guys uh, so that you can just see it again in practice and we can weigh in. And then at the end, um, I'll give you some additional thoughts just to kind of tie everything up. And if we have time, maybe some questions. So I know that's ambitious, and we have 55 minutes. All right. So, uh, so we were looking at teaching. And if you want to refer back to your handout, remember we said, okay, we've, we've got somebody in a relationship, uh, we're, we're loving on them, that they've, maybe they've come over a few times, and our first, our first uh, what did I call this, encouragement, our first encouragement was to not be afraid to probe into, uh, into life, just graciously, intentionally, in love. Um, so what we're talking about there is, you know, we're, we're trying to take relationships from just the surfacey, which is good, I'm, I say surfacey, and that implies that it's bad, like we that's what we traffic in, you know, where we work, what we like, you know, the, those things are good things about you. Um, but transitioning from there to more of a spiritual conversation, uh, we don't want to be a, a, too afraid to kind of ask more direct questions to probe. So one way we said that was just to say, hey, how can I be praying for you and praying for your growth in particular? Um, so don't be afraid to kind of speak in and, and, and be intentional about seeking, you know, where they're, where they're growing, where they desire to grow. And then... After they begin to talk to you about something, they want some help in a particular area, and they're looking to you, then you want to, number two, seek to genuinely understand what the issues are before you kind of weigh in on what you think is the problem and the solution, because we typically don't know uh, right out of the gate. So I've listed some proverbs there for you, talking about the wisdom of understanding, um, the need to ask good questions, uh, the humility that puts others' needs and interests before your own, and so you, you want to... You want to learn to ask good questions. We covered that in depth last time. And then as you're kind of getting to some of what, what you might think the core issues are as you're, as you're asking questions, then number three, you want to begin to help them respond biblically to their sin and its guilt. So what we mean by that is it's very important, uh, kind of right out of the gate, that people don't kind of blame their sin on other people, that they take responsibility for their sin, they confess sin to God and to anybody else that it needs to be confessed to. Because that's the, that's the way that people can move forward. That's the only way people can move forward in reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. Because we're constantly trying to, to figure out ways to deal with our guilt that aren't biblical. And so we looked at a number of those last time. And uh, we considered First John uh, 1 and what, what the Apostle John tells us there. And so as people are learning to own their sin... You know, we're, we want to get to that point where, okay, the, if this is a consistent pattern in their life where it's consistently tripping them up, we want to help them sort of isolate the issues and get to kind of the repetitive patterns in their life. Okay, so maybe the, the guy can't wake up in the morning, you know, with his alarm or um, the young lady's constantly gossiping. Okay, well, where, where, where in life is that happening? Where's the temptation point? And let's isolate that point and then begin to get, it, get at what are the lies that she or he is believing? What are the lies of the old self that they need to repudiate? And that looks like, you know, just trying to understand what are they saying to themselves in the moments of temptation? What are they saying before the moments of temptation? What do they say to themselves after they sin? This kind of inner real is almost every time is the, is the old man or the old woman that's speaking to them. That old corrupt nature that's full of, Paul tells us, full of deceit. So that old nature, full of deceit, full of lies, speaking to them. And so we want to try to get that out in the open so we can begin evaluating what the, the old man or woman is saying. And so that looks like we talked about that, identifying the lies of the old self so that we can see them clearly. Um, I like to tell people to write them out. Um, write out what you're saying to yourself, and then we'll come back in, and I'll, I'll help you try to think those through. Sometimes I even write them out in the moment with people. Um, so then once that's kind of out in the open, then we want to begin to evaluate what they're thinking um, with the truth of Christ, and specifically the truth that they can believe in the moments of temptation. So, again, we looked at that also in depth last week. Uh, and that's probably the most challenging point, and it's okay if you need to kind of press pause and say, all right, want to kind of leave this here. <laughs> I need to go think about it. Maybe I need to seek counsel um, just to see kind of like help help even myself discern what these things are, and then I'll, I can come back to you and get back to you on, on some of that. So we looked at that 
And um, and then we we kind of got we, we finally got to point number six. And as you identify the lies, you've identified the truth that you want to believe in the moment. Then you need to identify for them what it would look like to actually trust Jesus. And I put in there not what they feel. And then act on that in the moment of temptation. Does that make sense? So if you really believe this truth, so if for the guy that can't wake up, okay, if you. Sorry, guys, I keep picking on you. This is like on the front burner. That's a, an area I'm constantly mortifying because I'm always tired, it feels like. Okay? Um, but, okay, if, if the alarm goes off and you can't wake up and you say you believe John 15, that without, without him we can do nothing and I, need, I must abide in Christ, then that needs to be in my heart and in my mind, because I'm effectively believing a lie in that moment that I can do lots of things without Jesus, abiding in Jesus, and actually sleep is, is better for me in this moment than actually abiding in Jesus. And again, sleep is good, and if you don't get enough of it, you're going to die. Okay, so don't, there's, there's, don't, over, don't overhear me here. So sleep is good, um, but too much of it is not good, especially at the expense of abiding in Christ at the beginning of your day. So, um, so okay, that lie, you know, in that moment is, hey, I really don't need the Lord, like I, you know, like I say, like I think I do. Well, that's a lie because I really do need Him. And if I really believe that truth, then in that, what would that look like if I believed John fifteen? You tell me. This is not rocket science. You get up even though you don't feel like it. Okay, get up even though I don't feel like it. But I don't feel like it. Still get up. Okay, right. Yeah, so it's that moment that I have to I have to see. It's not just a, a matter of willpower necessarily, but it's a matter of renewing my mind in that moment when my eyes open, bringing that truth to mind and acting on it, learning to yield my will, what I want in that moment, to what Christ actually says in that moment. I want to act on that in the moment of, of temptation and learn to do that. And so that's really the point that I want to spend at least the first third of our time tonight um, fleshing out a little bit for you. So kind of as a, as a reference point, you can, you can turn over to Ephesians 4.24 there. This is the passage, kind of our anchor passage for all of all of this uh, this section. But we're, we've already seen in twenty verse twenty two, he's told us to put off that old self, the totality of it. So that includes our thinking and our behaviors that, that's corrupted. And then verse twenty three to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Okay, so that's what we just talked about. Point number five of identifying the truth of Christ to believe in the moment of temptation, and now act on that to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So with our minds renewed, we now need to act in accordance of the, with the truth. Act in line with the truth. Keep in step with the Spirit in the truth. And so, kind of launching point, we're going to launch there from Ephesians 4.24. I want to show you, if you were in Boundless this morning, you got a heavy dose of this, so we'll be brief. But, um, the first thing that we want to help others do is help them see that the Christian life, if you boil it down, is a life of faith. Okay? And that's your letter A on your outline. As we're helping people identify what it would look like to trust Jesus, we're, we often would have to help them come along and see that the Christian life is a life of faith. Paul says this in a number of places, but this is one of my favorites in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, so there's, there's not a, it's not passive, it's not a passive, he's actually living. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for Paul, his crucified life is a life of trusting Jesus. Um, He's growing in trusting Jesus in the situations of his life. 
but it's a life that's, that he can sort of summarize as as trusting in the Son of God, this this Son who loves him and gave himself up for him. So, what is faith? How would you guys describe faith if you had to articulate it to somebody? Faith is dot dot dot. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Nice, yeah. In your own words. That's good. The Bible's words are better. The Bible's words are better. But just talk to me. How would you describe faith? Let me flesh that out. What does that mean? I mean just trusting and believing what God says and the truth of his word even when it's hard to see it. Yeah. Excellent. Tuck, were you going to say something? Yep, believe in God says enough to act on it. Yep. Yeah, excellent. I mean, it's not it's not it's not rocket science. It's resting in in what God says, receiving it. And in this case, it is a an entrustment of yourself to Jesus, right? So it's it's entrusting ourselves to Christ, yielding to Him, believing that believing His words above my own words. And I think it's it's very helpful when you put that above my dot 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 you know on it because it puts some teeth on what faith is. It's it's a yielding to an authority. It's a yielding to Christ above what I think, feel, perceive, see with my own eyes. And you can, you know, if you're jotting down notes, Proverbs 3 is a, is a huge um, text on that as well. Do not lean on your own understanding um, in that famous trust in the Lord with all your heart passage. And so Paul didn't say here he lives his life by feelings. See that? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not by feelings necessarily. And so this means he's he's dying to himself, to use Jesus' terms. He's mortifying you know, his own desires, the things he thinks are right in the moment, when they conflict with what Christ has said. And this is that death to self spoken of by Jesus. And we act contrary to our feelings by faith in the truth. And we have to help people see that we're trying to disciple that this is, this is part of the Christian life. And then, your letter, letter B here, as they're understanding faith and seeing sort of the, what we say is like the centrality of faith in life, we want to help them connect practice with faith. Help them connect practice with faith. Meaning, I think getting at what Tuck said, if I really believe this, then it's going to change how I act. You know, I can say I believe that this rickety piece of furniture will hold me up if I sit on it, but if I never sit on it, you know, because I'm too afraid to sit on it, do I really believe it's going to hold me up? No. But I have to prove my faith by sitting on it, right? So our obedience, when we obey the Lord, it shows that we really do trust Him. I mean, just you can multiply examples. Imagine the kid that talks all day long about trusting his parents, but he disobeys them all the time. You know, that's not that doesn't reveal a trust um, in the child to the parent. It reveals a, a, a rebellious heart, trust in themselves. So obedience really reveals um, what we what we truly believe. And James teaches this in James two. Again, these are pastors are likely very familiar to you, but James 2 he says, But will someone say, You have faith and I have works? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith, here it is, was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It sounds almost contradictory to what we just heard this morning, doesn't it? Um, but it's not. They go hand in hand. James is emphasizing a different point here, that we can't just merely mouth that we believe, but it has to be shown, it has to be demonstrated. A life of true faith always has works um, that accompany it. 
or it's not real faith. So what we need to do as disciplers is help others connect how they live with what they believe. And that's where this point number six comes in. And what, where this gets encouraging is in, is in the passage uh, of Hebrews 5. I put that as a second reference there. Because, you know, we typically think, you know, we're just kind of grinding it out when we trust the Lord and obey, even if our feelings are kind of going sideways. We kind of feel like that's sort of not, not the real thing, not the real... Uh, not real obedience, I guess. Um, somehow half-hearted. But, but that's actually, ironically, how we grow. Um, and that's what Hebrews 5 is, is talking about here. Hebrews 5, verse 11. This paragraph, we're just dropping right into this uh, really complex context. But he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. So his point is that he was just t- talking about Melchizedek and some complex stuff about Melchizedek. And he's saying, you've been Christians long enough that you should be able to teach this stuff. But you, st- you need the basic stuff still. And why is it? Is it an information problem? He says, verse 13, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food, more complex teaching... Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we need to train our discernment, he's saying, by this quote-unquote constant practice of choosing good over evil in our daily life. That's how your discernment is increased, and that's how you come to understand more complex truth. So the problem for the Hebrews was that they hadn't been practicing what they'd been taught. They weren't living out what they knew, um, and so they were unskilled in the word of righteousness. They couldn't have a, they didn't have a palate for solid food because they were they weren't doing the sort of reps in the weight room, uh, the spiritual reps of choosing good over evil, renewing our minds, doing the hard work that we're talking about right right here. So this text shows us that our insight increases as we put the truth into practice, and we could say only as we put the truth into practice. If the truth isn't transforming how we think and how we live, then we're simply growing proud. Every act of obedience then is like doing another rep in that weight room. It's another reinforcement of the truth over error. It's another sort of blow to the death to self. You're eroding your own confidence in yourself by saying, I'm choosing to trust in what Jesus says, and I'm going to align my life with that versus everything else I think or feel. Every time we obey, it's another reinforcement of truth over error, which means we're growing in our discernment, and we're growing in who we are. Our Christ-like character is being formed as we make those choices by faith. And so that means then that we have to help our disciples see this. It's hard enough for us to see this. (laughs) But we have to help our disciples see this. And it's hard because we all want growth to be just easy. And we want to just sort of, our our obedience to like fully align with our desires. So we want our desires to just kind of just go right along with our obedience and never think we're going to meet with any internal resistance to obeying the will of God. And we almost expect that our desires are glorified. You know, that we've sort of arrived at this sort of inner transformation to think I'm never going to have a battle. I'm never going to have to go against my inner man, this old self. And when we meet fleshly opposition rising up in our hearts and the battle rages on, we think that something's wrong, right? I talk to people all the time that think this way. They're just like, what is wrong with me? Like you're a Christian, you know? Uh, there's nothing wrong with you. This is, the, this is the battle. It's difficult. Christ is with us at every point. So I, I'm saying it's difficult, but it's not a, it's, we're not abandoned by the Lord. Remember, we heard this this morning. I mean, beautiful passage. He's with us. He loves us. He's empowering us by His Spirit. 
And so in one sense, his yoke is easy and his burden is light because all he's asking us to do is trust him. Right? It's as simple as that. But the obedience, we, have, we step out in that faith, in trust, in obedience, and it often collides with what we want. And it's a great, it's a great opportunity to resign ourselves to him like he modeled for us in the garden with his father. Something's not wrong when we have to fight. Um, it's, it's a war that we're in, but Christ still loves us, and he loves his little weak disciples. He's with us. He's going to help us in that, in that war. So, um, let me think here. I have give example in my notes. Hmm. Just pick one from my own life here. Connecting practice with faith. There was a period of time where I, probably over the last year, that I was getting, uh, I was very irritable in the home. None of you guys can identify with any of that. Um, but it was, it was a, becoming a pattern. And, um, you know, and so I would kind of be snappy at Mary and kind of bark at my kids to try to get them in line, you know, in a particular. And I, as I began to kind of notice what was going on, I was tracking it. So I started noticing patterns. It's like, okay, certain circumstances would happen, and it's like, I should, be, I should get angry at this, but I don't. But then another circumstance would happen, and it's like, I get angry at this. And I, I began to realize that it was when everyone in my household was, quote-unquote, you know, losing it, was when I, would get, when I would get angry. So one person in the household could lose it, or even several people in the household could lose it, but when everyone seems to be coming unglued, that's when I also uh, had the hardest time and so I began to see that, and then I began to realize, like, okay, I would watch it happen, you know, as person A starts to lose it, person B starts to lose it, you know. And I could feel it start rising up within me, this sort of anger. Then I began to ask myself, what am I thinking in that moment? Like, what is, what's going on in my head, in my heart? And usually the resounding thought that I would have is either I don't have time for this, this isn't good, um, this is kind of the worst thing for me right now. Because everything's imploding, and I've got to try to hold it all together. You know, I don't deserve this. And I began to realize, like, those are all just lies that I'm believing every time this circumstance happens. And the Lord is, loves me enough to be faithful to continue giving me those circumstances. So, um, so and I, what I'm telling you took me about two weeks, okay, to kind of observe, journal. I journal a lot, you know, on some of these things just to try to understand myself and what's going on. And I began to realize, okay, I'm thinking this is, the, the core of it was I was thinking this is the worst thing for me in this moment. And that was a complete denial of the fact that Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good, even the quote-unquote implosion of my family. So then I began to think, okay, well, that's, I know this truth that God's working this thing for good, so what is he, what do I know that God is doing in this scenario? So we begin to write them out. I know that God is um, giving me this opportunity to grow my to grow the fruit of the Spirit. Give me an opportunity to move into this situation with kindness and gentleness, versus with with anger and just compounding the problem. So I know He's doing that. I know that He's He's testing my faith. He's growing my faith, and He's wanting to glorify his, Himself in my home. He's wanting for me to show my wife and my children what. Um, a spirit-filled, humble man looks like uh, to be redemptive in this moment. So I begin to just journal all these things out. And then what is my anger doing? My anger is only compounding the problem. And then the Lord, you know, hammered me that the, the anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. <laughs> and so me trying to, you know, manipulate my wife with a sarcastic comment and bark at my kids and get them in line, that's not accomplishing any kind of redemptive um, agenda in the home. And so it took some some hardcore repenting, but I began to see, okay, what what would I say and do? So this is kind of getting to where, where I was at in the identify what it would look like to trust Jesus. What would I say and do if I really believed that God was for me in this moment? And I just started writing out things I would say to my kids, to my wife, how I would enter into that scenario. The next time it happened, I got angry, had to repent. <laughs> I went back to my journal. I rehearsed what I was going to say the next time. And it's just a slow pattern, uh, you know, kind of fighting it out in the trenches uh, of my home of just, okay, this is what obedience looks like, this by faith in Christ, 
And God was faithful. The Spirit was faithful to begin to work patterns of kindness and patience, and, and that had a redemptive impact on the family. And so that's not any kind of boast because I've failed more times than I've succeeded in that. But the Spirit was faithful to produce his fruit um, as we yield to him by faith. So that's kind of an example of what that would look like. And what I just did is what you guys need to do in your discipleship relationships. You need to let her see, give examples from your own life that's going to help map onto the people that are struggling in these areas as well. All right? Don't be shy about that. Even examples of, of your failure, even examples of ways that you're currently grappling with the very same issues that they're grappling with. Because last time I checked, none of us are perfected and all of our hearts are the same. Right? And so we're all grappling at the same, on the same issues. So help them see what it looks like in real time in your own life in a similar situation or a situation from your past. How are you putting the flesh to death? How are you enduring when you're discouraged? What truths do you go to? And so share that with, with those that are following you. They're going to be encouraged and stimulated to press on. And I wrote down 2 Timothy 3 here. One of my favorite texts on this. And Paul's relationship with Timothy is beautiful. It's worthy of emulation um, because of how how he loved him, how he had him with him everywhere, how he um, just opened his life completely up to him to the point that at the end of his life he was able to appeal to certain things that he was certain that Timothy had seen and followed. So look in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching. You followed my conduct. You followed my aim in life. You followed my faith. You followed my patience. You followed my love, my steadfastness. Just so, just so we feel this, let me just slow down. You followed my teaching, meaning that he... Paul had taken the time to teach Timothy things and to help Timothy walk in that. That's what it means to follow Paul's teaching. He's followed his conduct. So he's particularly mimicked Paul's behaviors. He's seen them, watched Paul interact, and now he's learned to mimic those same kinds of things. (coughs) He knew Paul well enough that he could articulate Paul's aim in life, why he got up in the morning, what motivated him to lay his, bed down, lay his head down in bed at night and think of, his, think of the day as a day well done? Um, he knew his aim and was able to follow that aim in life. He saw how Paul trusted the Lord. Um, he saw when Paul's faith was, was faltering, where he went, how he strengthened his faith. So he, he followed his faith. He followed his patience. So he saw, he saw when Paul was uh, maligned by unbelievers, he saw how Paul was often probably snapped at by the sheep and he watched him be patient in those scenarios he watched how he interacted with people and he followed him in that he learned to mimic his patience he learned to mimic his love he saw how he lay his life down for the for the sake of the sheep i mean we just we in our college ministry this morning we we, we looked at how paul in his first missionary journey got stoned he went on a on a circuit planted churches in multiple cities in the galatian region he gets stoned at Lystra, left for dead, to the point like it was brutal. He gets up the next day, keeps preaching, and then he makes a return journey to go back to all those churches that he had planted because he loved them and wanted to strengthen them in the faith. And I'm assuming at great physical cost to himself. And so he saw, that's love. He saw, Timothy saw that. He saw, he saw these examples of, of the apostles' love for the, for the sheep. Um, he saw his steadfastness in, in trials and in endurances. His, he saw how he was persecuted and suffered. And he learned from Paul in all of those things, and he mimicked Paul in all those things. So what I'm trying to show you is when I'm just saying give examples from your own life, I'm not just kind of pulling that out of thin air. Um, the twelve traveled around with Jesus. The three spent significant time with Jesus. They watched him. 
they saw examples, and so we, we need that. It kind of gets back to our, our modeling uh, back in week two. So don't be shy to give examples um, when you're talking to folks uh, to encourage them and, and give them something to follow. Letter D here, um, also, as you're doing these things, as you're helping people kind of map, you know, you've, you've clarified things like, okay, here's the truth, here's the lie, here's the truth, here's how you're supposed to obey, right? It's like crystal clear. <laughs> Don't then expect instantaneous growth. That's letter D. And it's, it's very tempting, uh, maybe this is just my bent, uh, as I'm kind of prone to hypocrisy, but just to expect things of others that I don't expect for myself. You know, do you expect yourself to grow instantaneously? You usually give yourself a lot of leeway, you know, and like applying principles. So we want to do the same um, with those that, that are following us. Be patient. Give them the time and space to grow into these newfound convictions that you're helping them to establish. So I often compare it to, you know, path in the woods, the lies and the old man and just kind of how you have lived in the past or how the disciple of yours has lived in the past is like a path through the woods that's well-worn, cut down, and they don't even have to, they can, they can do it with their eyes closed. You know, it's like the default. And so now you've exposed that, as a, that's actually path of destruction. There's this new path over here, and they're like, where's the path? You know, and so now it's time, we gotta, we got to cut this new path out with the truth. All right, so we got to lay that truth in there. we got to lay some convictions in there. we got to help you, okay, where is that in the Bible? What does that mean in the Bible? What does that look like? So there's some cutting that has to take place, you know, cutting down the briars. And then you got to teach them to walk down that path and not go back to that old path because that old path's easy. So, again, it just it takes time, and that, but that's how we grow. And so we need to know that, that it's progressive over time and uh, just kind of commit, commit to each other, you know, over, over an extended period and not just expect, man, once I've, once I've laid this out, you should just get it. And that leads to, you know, letter E, that is, as our folks are attempting to obey, we've got to provide them with a lot of affirmation. Now, when I say affirmation, I don't know what you think of. I used to think of exclusively self-esteem, you know, and I was affirmation averse. Um, anytime my wife tried to tell me anything good, I was like, thought that was flattering me or, or whatever. It's early on in marriage. Not good. All right? Uh, this is the biblical category of encouragement. And I was going to share an example, but I didn't clear it with Mary first. So I'm, I'm going to hold off on that one. <laughs> Trying to grow in wisdom. There was a period in my husbanding that I was, again, if you can think of, if I thought all of affirmation was flattery, <clears throat> then you can be certain that I wasn't giving very much affirmation in the home. And, and that was to my shame, because that, that starved my wife from needed encouragement. And uh, so there was a period where that just, the Lord made that very evident to me, and I had to do some hardcore repenting. And so I kind of, it launched me into a study of, Encouragement and what, how, how Paul uh, encouraged the churches, what he said. And so what I, what I kind of found from that was that Paul consistently told the churches that he was thankful to God for them, and he, he, he would tell them about the various fruit that he observed in their lives. And one astounding example of this is in 2 Corinthians in se- chapter 7 and 8. I think I put that, did I put that in your outline? Yeah. Yeah. He bragged on the Corinthians to Titus, he tells them, in chapter 7, verse 14. Then he acknowledges their obedience and affirms it in verse 15. This is chapter 7. Then he commends them that they excel in everything. Then he says, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in chapter 8, verse 7. And so Paul was lavish. He wasn't wasn't esteeming them and something that but he was esteeming the work of God in them, and he was free to point it out. Because get this, any time you or I, or the somebody you're discipling, does any act of obedience by faith, that's a work of God. 
That's a work of God. It should be commended, celebrated. Um, If heaven is rejoicing at the repentance of sinners, if God pictures himself as a father who's running out to meet his prodigal son on the return home, kissing him, clothing him, that should be our attitude. Whenever we see the, the slightest, smallest act of repentance, the slightest or smallest act of faith, we should follow Jesus' and Paul's model of affirmation. We should strive to commend and praise every act of faith and obedience as we, as we see in those that we're discipling. And what does that do? When you hear that, when, I, when somebody affirms your life, what does that do? Affirms the work of God in your life. Makes you want to do more. Makes you want to do more, yeah. It assures you that God's at work. Right? That they're on the right path. That God's with them in the fight. This is massively important, and yet we often neglect just biblical affirmation. Um, One pastor, he actually spoke here, Jim Neuheiser, he said that this was all part of the catalyst to this book that I read called Practicing Affirmation. So that's a really good book. Um, Jim Neuheiser, he he said uh, that criticisms are like withdrawals and affirmations are like deposits. And he says that it's similar to that, but it's different because the amounts are not equal. The critical statements take out, he said, five times as much as the affirmation deposits. Now, he's just making that up, you know, random stat. But I think the, the imagery is helpful. And it's kind of true to our experience so that means we need to be sparing in our criticisms and heavy with our affirmation and encouragements and when the time comes for criticism there's plenty in the bank then for withdrawal so to speak and uh, again if you want a good read on that it's practicing affirmation Crabtree is that the guy's last name Sam Crabtree, Sam Crabtree yep so it is uh, an excellent read very short uh it took me, I don't want to exaggerate, probably about six months to read it. Three to six months, I can't remember. But it was a long time because I would read a page and have to, like, talk to Mary and repent. Because <laughs> it was, and then try to practice what he had just told me to do, you know. Um, it was very, very helpful. And so, but that doesn't mean then that we never correct, all right, because... There will be disobedience, just like there's disobedience in our lives, just like we need correction. So uh, those that are following us will also need occasional and gracious, patient correction. Sometimes we'll even need to, to warn and bring strong rebuke to those that we're discipling because that's our, a demonstration of our sincere love for them. If they're in unrepentant sin and they're headed for destruction, we have to weigh in. Because we care for them. We're willing to put the friendship on the line for the sake of their soul. And that's what sincere love does. But we've got to be doubly on guard, especially in these discipling relationships where we've invested a lot of time and energy. We have to be on guard of correcting out of frustration or correcting out of irritation, correcting out of anger. Because we kind of take it personally when disciples don't get it, when they, quote-unquote, waste our time. Because you've sacrificed your time and energy, and yet there they go making the same mistake for the fifth time. Where It's, where it's tempting to say that. But if we're honest, there's also a lot of self-righteousness mixed in there. Because we're saying, we would never disobey for the fifth time. You know? How can they just go back to the... We would never be that dumb, that immature, that, you know. That's implied underneath that, that irritability uh, when, when folks don't, don't change in the, in the time period that we think they should. So we've got to be on guard that in our corrections that we're not like snap correcting, right? And that's good for husbands. That's good for, you know, wives and their children and everything. But we've got to be careful that we're not correcting from an offended heart. Sometimes we can take offense when our advice isn't heeded. And so we correct, and we, to, we correct, and our, our goal in correction is to let them know how offended we are, how upset we are, 
that they didn't listen to what we said. But again, we've got to be motivated by love and a genuine concern for their welfare, genuine concern for their joy and development in Christ. And then our corrections will be, will be pleasing to the Lord and they will be often used to bring about the change in our disciples that, that we want to see them make. And so we should be giving regular feedback to those that are, that are following us, not leaving them to wonder if they're getting it right or not. And affirmation will put wind in the sails, and a timely correction will help them make progress and stay the course. All right? And finally here, we want to give our disciples, those who are following us, as we're helping them obey, we want to give them a vision for helping others. Because that's a, that becomes an incentive, a biblical incentive for growth and obedience. And I'm basing that out of uh, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4 and 5, some examples there. Paul was very concerned that those that he is he's investing in, like this Ephesian, Ephesian church, not only turns from their sin, not only learns to practice the righteousness and grow in Christ, but becomes part of the solution. Uh, just one example here from Ephesians 5 is with the sexually impure. So he's told them in verse 3 of chapter 5 that that shouldn't even be named among you. That needs to be repented of, put away, crude joking, it's all, you know, it all needs to go, and thanksgiving needs to be in its place. He goes on to elaborate why that is. And then it takes an interesting turn. He says in, in verse 11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Talking about the sexual, all that sexual sin. Take no part in that, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to, to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, look at this, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <coughs> and we don't have time for a full-on treatment of this passage, but what he's saying, I think we think expose them, is sort of like shame them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying bring their evil behavior to light for the purpose of their salvation. So he's saying don't participate in it, but be part of the solution. Be proactive and moving toward that to expose. Like in Paul's mind, he wants the sexually immoral to repent, to grow in Christ, to become pure, you know, I would argue get married, and then be part of the be part of the solution. Be helping other people who are sexually immoral come to faith in Jesus. Expose them to the light. And so I try to put this in front of people that I'm investing in, usually from day one. Because they're, you know, they're thanking me for my time. And I will gently remind them that the Lord is going to use them in the life of another person one day in this very area as they make progress. That's his purpose in changing them. And sometimes I'll even say that eventually I'm going to come to expect them to speak into my life at the same level I'm speaking into their life. Because I'm going to need them just like they need me. And I try to set this expectation as early as possible insofar as it's wise to do that. Because that's God's goal. That's Christ's goal for His people. And like we said, putting this expectation out there serves as another motivation to help, uh, to help them continue to, to fight for obedience, be, become useful, right? To live a fruitful life that's productive, that's helpful, that's part of the body, contributing. So we're going to end there. Obviously, I could talk about this stuff all day, so I'm just going to stop. You know, we've only got 15 minutes, uh, well, what is that, 13 minutes left? So, let's take this and do a quick case study. All right? So you befriended somebody, we'll say it's a young man named, what's the generic name? John. John, perfect. Okay. What's that? Good name. It's a good name. Strong name. Yeah. They have a lot of problems, too. Do they have a lot of problems? Yeah. I can testify to that. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. All right. So John is here. You befriended John. And, you know, you asked John how you can be praying for him. 
And here's how John responds. He says, well, things with my brother are really tough right now, and I would appreciate prayer for that. So you've just done point number one. You were kind of bold, and you kind of weighed, and you've been asking, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for your growth? And he brings up this sort of generic prayer request that things with his brother are tough. He would appreciate prayer. So you could pray, or... uh, I don't know about you, but that's the, things are still hazy for me. You know, somebody says that, I have no idea what, what that means or what's going on. So if I have time and it wouldn't be perceived as rude, I would probably uh, start asking more questions. I would go number two, all right? Seek to genuinely understand. So I'd say something like this. Okay, really? Tough? What do you mean by that? Things with the brother are tough? Like, what's that? what does that mean? A little more gracious than that, but you get the point. Um, he might say something like this. I, I literally, there's, there's nobody in my mind. Okay, I, I wrote this this afternoon. I was making this up as I, as I went along, all right? He might say something like this. What's well, a long story, but things have happened in the past that make it really hard to be around it. I hate it, actually. And I think some really awful things about him that I'm almost ashamed to admit. Lately, I've realized I've been very angry inside. In my last interaction with him, I exploded all over him with something super, uh, like around something that was really minor. So yeah, things are a mess right now, and I'm not really sure what to do. Any thoughts? He says. So how would you evaluate that? What did you hear? Anger, anger, bitter, bitter. Okay, anger, bitterness, and resentment. Good. Probably hasn't forgiven his brother for something that happened a while in the past. Okay, good. A lack of forgiveness for something that happened in the past. Now, I kind of set you up for failure on that question because I would still need more information. Um, (laughs) So... But you kind of you kind of heard that, okay? So there, he alluded to something that happened in the past. So I would say, what kind of things have happened in the past, right? What's happened there? Again, you know, Mary sometimes she is very kind and just drips with just tenderness and empathy, and I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum, <laughs> as you can tell by now. And uh, and sometimes she's like, "Why did you say that? Like, why did you ask that question? Like, it appalls her." That, uh, you know, and I didn't even think twice about it. It's just like I'm genuinely curious. I want to try to help. And so I'm not saying you have to do this exactly like I, like I would do. I'm just telling you how, how I would approach it, okay? I would want to know what things have happened in the past. Like what happened there? He's obviously been hurt in some way. He's, it's either been a real hurt or a perceived hurt. We don't know. But I want to know, kind of draw that out. So let's say his parents had been playing favorites. And they constantly affirm his brother but they criticize him. You begin to kind of, he begins to talk, and in the past, he thought if he tried harder, they would affirm him too, but it seems that no matter how hard he tries, they continue to scold him while overlooking the sins and the weaknesses and the failures of his brother. Now, how would you assess it? Jealousy. Okay, there's another, there's another play, there's two more players involved, right? And it's the parents. Now there's jealousy involved, which is, might begin to explain the outburst that was over a minor offense. Right? So again, we're, we're, we're starting to dig a little bit. But I would also want more detail on what happened in that last interaction with his brother. Because if you notice, he was vague about that. What happened in this most recent interaction that he quote-unquote blew up? What was the super minor thing he got upset about? Okay, well, let's just say, well, my brother was kidding around at the fact that I had, you know, miffed an exam. We're both in college. We're twins. We're both in college, same time, and he's, you know, got good grades, and I, you know, got a lower grade than him, and he was teasing me about that, and and I blew up over that. And then the brother gets upset at him because he overreacted when he was just messing with him, and then that escalates everything. So then I want to know, okay, what does the blowing up look like? What happened? Did he scream? Did he hit them? Did he walk out? How long did this happen? How, how significant was this? So we'll say he initially he yelled at him. He called him a mama's boy and mama's favorite, straight-A student. Then he went on mercilessly picking apart his flaws. 
That's what happened. And he says, I don't know what came over me. And my brother just stormed out, and I haven't spoken to him since. And that was three weeks ago. So that gives us, again, just more context of the severity of, of what some of the problems are. And we're starting to test our hypotheses as we're thinking about these things. And we're saying, okay, yeah, I think that's there. I think that's here. And so finally, I would want to hear, how are you processing that? Right? So how, what have you tried to do in the past? Have you tried to rectify this or, or solve the problem? And he's already told us that at one point. He said he tried to perform better for his parents. But he's just internalized their criticisms. He's never spoken to them about it, let's say. He's completely embittered against his parents. And he interprets everything they do in light of that embitterment, which is now, helpful to know, that's probably not 100% accurate because he's embittered and now he's interpreting everything through that lens. He's considered running away, but he knows that that's probably a bad idea. He doesn't have a job. He wants a relationship with his brother to get better, though. And he would like a relationship with his parents, but he's kind of too angry to work on any of it. But he knows he needs to, he knows he needs to, to deal with his anger because it's, he's scared. Because his dad used to be angry, he is angry, and he doesn't want to be like his dad. So then I, won't, I, I might press in a little bit more because now he's, now he's really sharing. I might ask him, okay, who do you think is at fault? If he's honest, it's his parents, he says, because they played favorites, and his brother because he's gone along with it. And when you press him about his anger and his bitterness, he grudgingly admits, yeah, I guess I've contributed maybe a little bit too. So now I think we're in a position to make some assessments, right? So now, what would we say? Anything that's added to our observations? Yeah. Critical of others' failings, but doesn't see them in himself. Yeah. Yep. Blame shifting. Excellent. How? Uh, it's his parents' fault. It's his brother's fault. It's because of what they did to him that these things are wrong. It's his circumstances. It's not him at all. Yeah, that's an excellent observation. There's blame shifting that's happening. And again, but are they at fault? Are the parents at fault? Let's just hypo- let's be hypothetical. But that doesn't excuse his own. Excellent. Yeah, so the parents have contributed to this, but remember back to where the sin comes from? So although the circumstances may have been severe, let's say his parents were abusive. That's pressed in on him in some horrific ways, but he is still responsible for responding what came out of his heart in terms of the response. Now, we don't start there in that kind of scenario because we begin, we, we understand to empathize, right, with the suffering. There's another principle that I'd never talk about, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that we are simultaneously victims and victimizers. I think we did talk about that at one point. <clears throat> Meaning, we live in this broken world and we're sinned against all the time. But we're also perpetrators of that as well. So nobody's like off the hook because they've been sinned against. Because we're constantly, we're in sin, we're dead in sin, we're responding sinfully to the sin against us. And so there's just sin all around. So one of the things that we want to begin doing in this scenario is we want to begin helping him map out, okay, what are, what are his areas of responsibility that he wants, that he's going to have to take ownership of, and what are not his areas of responsibility? Does that make sense? So that's leading to point number three, to help him respond biblically to his sin and to his guilt. Now, in this case, I told you guys a couple times ago that this is not like a silver bullet, just step by step. Because this guy is pretty entrenched in some ways of thinking. We've already heard some of his deceptions, right? So we're going to have to go slow with this. And we're going to have to go to probably number four. And begin to, to begin drawing out even how he's thinking about his own sin, how he's thinking about the sin of his parents, Again, where the responsibility is. And we, we're going to begin to have to think about what is he going to need to be, be able to move forward, realize the significance of his sin, his own sin, trust God with what's been perpetrated against him, and obey Christ in what Christ has asked him to do. Right? So what are some of the, the truths 
uh, moving forward, we've kind of already begun to identify some of the lies. You know, that, okay, I'm not responsible for my sin. They're responsible for my sin. That's a big lie. What kinds of truths will this young man need to internalize moving forward? What do you think? We're running short on time. That's why I just skipped right to the truth part. This is the life-giving part. Yeah. The principle of turning the other cheek and forgiving. Yeah, the need to forgive. Yep. But what if he says, well, I just can't. I know that that's what that says, but I can't forgive them for what they've done for me. Okay, God did the same to you. So what else does he need to know? He's a too. What's that? He's a sinner too. Like yes. Eye. Sorry, I couldn't hear where that was coming from. I could hear the voice, but I couldn't see the face. Okay. Yeah, he's a sinner too. And he's going to need to know more of the extent of his own sin. Right? And what he's been forgiven of. So I think where I would start is I would kind of back up and I would want to help him see, okay, the fact that people can provoke us to anger is a reality. And the fact that p- parents can provoke children to anger is a reality. Remember Galatians, or not Galatians, Ephesians 6 talks about that phenomenon and show them how that that happens. And so what, then it's like, okay, just because that happens, where does your sin come from, right? So that Mark 6, that kind of idea that sin comes from the heart. It, just because they provoke me doesn't mean they caused my anger, so it doesn't ultimately justify anger because it comes from our hearts. So we'd want to help them establish that. Then I would want to help him establish the sinfulness of anger and the danger of bitterness for him. Because he's been hurt. He's not dealt with that biblically. He's become bitter. And now he's spewing out venom all over everybody because he's bitter. He's interpreting things wrongly because he's bitter. And so I want to help him see that this is detrimental to his own soul, even if they are guilty of everything he's accused them of. And then that's putting him in a position to to understand the reality of the sinfulness of our sin against Christ, in particular of our anger. That what's happened to us can't begin to pale in comparison to what we've done to Jesus. That's what the, the scriptures say. And then comes the reality of the depth of his forgiveness of us. Then we want to help him see the reality of Christ's sovereignty over the situation that he's experienced with his parents. God gave him those parents. God gave him that brother. God's given him his limitations that he has. And that's all in God's good and kind sovereign providence for, his, for this young man's life. He can trust God in that. And then there's the reality of the command of Christ to mimic him in forgiveness of others. So if we've experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus, he commands us to bend that out. He's forgiven us for that purpose, to learn to forgive others. And so you want to go to texts to help him see that as well. Texts on all of these, by the way. And one other thing that I would want to help him see is that sin in God's economy never goes unpunished. One hindrance to somebody who sinned against grievously is that if I forgive, they're just going to get away with this. And it's often helpful, you know, we ought to unpack that thought because there's a lot of, of, you know, vengeance in that thought. But that's not the way that sin works in God's economy. God is just, and so sin's always going to be punished. And it will either be punished by the Lord Jesus, and it, if, if the person that sinned against you is trusting in Jesus, so God poured his wrath out on his son, or it will be borne by that person for all of eternity in hell. They'll never get away. Sin will never be swept under the rug by God. But vengeance is his, and it's not that young man's. And so no sin ever goes unpunished. Vengeance is the Lord's. It's not his. And so we can trust God with those things. Obviously, there's other things we could talk about, love for our enemies and those things. But those would be some of the core, core truths that I'd want to kind of put into his mind over a period of time and then go back to number three, in helping him respond biblically to his sin and his guilt. Then, kind of getting whiplash, tied up here. Number six, what would it look like to trust Jesus in that moment? Like if you really do trust Jesus and you really believe these things, you might not feel like forgiving, but what are you going to do? You're going to humble yourself? You're going to go to the people that you've sinned against and own your own sin first to them. 
as hard as that's going to be. So we've got to work him up to that point. Then you're going to speak truthfully. You're going to, if people have sinned against you, you want to articulate that, seek reconciliation as far as it depends on you to try to live peaceably with all men. We're going to help him through that. My point here, we'll just end it because we're way, way, way over time here. But if you've got questions, we can talk later. But you're going to ha- well, you want to help him map that out onto his, um, his experience, what it would look like to obey by faith. All right? Um, yeah, just going to hard landing on the plane here. But uh, it's been sweet. I've enjoyed kind of throwing some stuff at you in this class. It's probably what it's felt like. But uh, we're all in this together, trying to figure it out together. All right, you're dismissed.